Hey, thank you guys for tuning in to the Only You Podcast. This is your boy, Lo Jackson. Today, I'm going to be reading The Prince and the Pauper, but this podcast is to encourage folks out there to pick up books online that are free. There's so much information that's being passed over for technology. I would highly recommend picking up a book and putting the phone down for a while, a real book, honestly. I did that over the weekend. Man, it was so relaxing. The weather here has been great. I was outside today. I got sunburned, actually. <laughs> I haven't been sunburned in years. But it is beautiful here. And I'm grateful that the nice weather's back for reading books outside my hammock and enjoying the weather when I can. Thank you all for listening. Thank you for sharing me. Thank you for following me. And everybody, I love you. So give yourself a hug right now. Yep. Sharing air hugs, you know, over these podcast waves. <laughs> Today we're going to be doing the Prince and the Pauper, but first of all, I wanted to tell you a little bit more about Mr. Mark Twain, our author this month, Samuel Langhorn Clemens. You know, I told you in my last podcast, Life on the Mississippi, that he was born on November 30th, 1835 in Florida, Missouri. Um, he was a sickly and frail young man until he was about seven years old. Clemens was the sixth of seven children, only three whom survived to adulthood. In 1839, Clemens' father, John Marshall, a self-educated lawyer who ran a general store, moved his family to the town of Hannibal, Missouri, in search of better business opportunities. Decades later, his son would set his popular novels, The the Adventures of Tom Sawyer and Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, in a fictionalized version of Hannibal, John Marshall Clemens became a justice of the peace in Hannibal, but struggled financially. When Samuel Clemens was 11, his 49-year-old father passed away of pneumonia. Twain's formal education actually was limited, you guys. Um... In 1848, the year after his father's death, Clemens went to work full-time as an apprentice printer at a newspaper in Hannibal. And on 1850, excuse me, in 1851, he moved over to typesetting job at a local paper owned by his older brother, Orion, and eventually penned a handful of short items for the publication. In 1853, 17-year-old Clemens left Hannibal and spent the next several years living in places such as New York City, Philadelphia, Keokuk, Iowa, and working as a printer. Yeah, and he worked as a printer in all those places. I've been to Keokuk. Uh, His career as a riverboat pilot was um, actually marred by tragedy in 1857, uh, Clemens began, excuse me, uh, he became an apprentice steamboat pilot on the Mississippi River, which I had told you that in the last podcast, uh, Life on the Mississippi. The following year, while employed on a boat called the Pennsylvania, he got his younger brother, Henry, a job aboard the vessel. Samuel Clemens worked on the Pennsylvania until early June. Then on June 13th, disaster struck when the Pennsylvania, traveling near Memphis, experienced a deadly boiler explosion. Among those who perished as a result 
was 19-year-old Henry. Samuel Clemens was devastated by the incident, but got his pilot's license in 1859. He worked on steamboats until the outbreak of the American Civil War in 1861. When commercial traffic along the Mississippi was halted, Clemens' pen name Mark Twain comes from a term signifying two phantoms a safe depth of water for a steamboat which is 12 feet two excuse me two fathoms um, Twain brief, uh, briefly served with a confederate militia jeez in June 1861 shortly after oh okay shortly after the Civil War began 25 year old Clemens joined the Marion Rangers, a pro-Confederate militia. Although his family had owned a slave when he was a boy, Clemens didn't have strong ideological convictions about the war and probably enlisted with the militia primarily out of loyalty to his southern roots. His time with the group turned out to be brief. After two weeks of conducting drills, the poorly supplied Marion Rangers disbanded upon hearing a rumor that a Union force led by Ulysses S. Grant, as Clemens eventually learned, was headed their way. The following month, Clemens left Missouri and the war behind and <clears throat> excuse me, journeyed west with his brother Orion, who had been named the Territorial Secretary of Nevada. Once there, Clemens tried to hand he tried his hand at silver mining and then, after failing to strike it, Rich took a job as a reporter with the Virginia City, Nevada newspaper in the fall of 1862. Thank you guys for listening to the Only You podcast. And I'm just reading you a little bit about our author because I found some of this stuff interesting. Uh, Twain was a staunch supporter of technological progress and commerce, he was against welfare measures. Because he believed that society in the business age is governed by exact and constant laws that should not be interfered with for accommodation of any individual or political or religious faction. He uh, uh, <clears throat> excuse me. He upend that there is no good government at all and none possible. In the opinion of Washington University professor Guy. A. Cadwell. By present standards, Mark Twain was more conservative than liberal. He believed strongly in laissez-faire, thought personal political rights secondary to property rights, admired self-made plutocrats, and advocated a leadership to be composed of men of wealth and brains. Among his attitudes, now more readily recognized as liberal were a faith in progress through technology and a hostility towards monarchy inherited aristocracy, the Roman Catholic Church, and in his later years, imperialism. So that was somebody else's viewpoint, but kind of interesting, right? Thank you guys for listening to the Only You podcast. And... I'm going to be doing the Prince and the Pauper today.
Chapter 1 The Birth of the Prince and the Pauper In the ancient city of London, on a certain autumn day, in the second quarter of the 16th century, a boy was born to a poor family in the name of Canty, who did not want him. On the same day, another English child was born to a rich family of the name of Tudor, who did not want him. All England wanted him too. England had so longed for him and hoped for him and prayed God for him that now that he was really come, the people went nearly mad for joy. M mere acquaintances hugged and kissed each other and cried. Everybody took a holiday and high and low, rich and poor, feasted and danced and sang and got very mellow and they kept this up for days and nights together. By day, London was a sight to see, with gay banners waving with every balcony and housetop, and splendid pageants marching along. By night, it was again a sight to see, with its great bonfires at every corner, and its troops of revealers making merry around them. There was no talk in all England but of the new baby, Edward Tudor, Prince of Wales who lay laped in a silks and satins unconscious of all this fuss and not knowing the great lords and ladies were tending him and watching over him and not caring either. But there was no talk about the other baby, Tom Canty, lapped in his poor rags except among the family of paupers whom he had just come to trouble with his presence. Chapter 2. Tom's Early Life. Let us skip a number of years. London, yeah, London was 1,500 years old and was a great town for that day. It had a hundred thousand inhabitants. Some think double as many. The streets were very narrow and crooked and dirty, especially in the part where Tom Canty lived which was not far from London Bridge. The houses were of wood, and the second story projecting over the first, and the third sticking its elbows out beyond the second. The higher the houses grew, the broader they grew. They were skeletons of strong cross beams with solid material between coated with plaster. The beams were painted red or blue or black, according to the owner's taste, and this gave the house a very picturesque look. The windows were small glazed with little diamond-shaped panes, and they opened outward on hinges like doors. The house which Tom's father lived in was up a foul little pocket called Oval Court, out of Pudding Lang. It was small, decayed, and rickety, but it was packed full of wretchedly poor families. Canty's tribe occupied a room on the third floor. The mother and father had a sort of bedstead in the corner, but Tom, his grandmother, and his two sisters, Bet and Nan, were not restricted. They had all the floor to themselves and might sleep where they choose. There were the remains of a blanket or two, and 
some bundles of ancient and dirty straw, but these could not rightly be called beds, for they were not organized. They were kicked into a general pile, mornings and sections made from the mass at night for service. Be and Nan were fifteen years old twins. They were good-hearted girls, unclean clothed in rags, and profoundly ignorant. Their mother was like them. But the father and the grandmother were a couple of fiends. They got drunk whenever they could. Then they fought each other or anybody else who came in the way. They cursed and swore, always drunk and sober. John Candy was a thief and his mother a beggar. The... Excuse me. They made beggars of the children, but failed to make thieves of them. Among, but not of the dreadful rabble that inhabited the house, was a good old priest whom the king had turned out of house and home with a pension of a few farthings, and he used to get the children aside and teach them right ways secretly. Father Andrew also taught Tom a little Latin and how to read and write, and would have done the same with the girls, but they were afraid of the jeers of their friends, who could not have endured such a queer accomplishment in them. All Orful Court was just such another hive as Canty's house. Drunkenness, riot, and brawling were the order there, every night and nearly all night long. Broken heads were as common as hunger in that place, yet little Tom was not unhappy. He had a hard time of it, but did not know it. It was the sort of time that all the Orful Court boys had, therefore he supposed it was the correct and comfortable thing. When he came home empty-handed at night, he knew his father would curse him and thrash him first, and then that when he was done, the awful grandmother would do it all over again and improve on it, and that way in the night, his starving mother would slip to him stealthily with any miserable scrap of crust she had been able to save for him by going hungry herself. Notwithstanding, she was often caught in that sort of treason and soundly beaten for it by her husband. No, Tom's life went along well enough, especially in the summer. He only begged just enough to save himself for the laws again, excuse me, for the laws against mendency were stringent, the penalties heavy. So put in a good deal of his time listening to good Father Andrews charming old tales and legends about giants and fairies, dwarfs and like, and enchanted castles and gorgeous kings and princes. His head grew to be full of these wonderful things, and many a night as he lay in the dark on his scant and offensive straw, tired, hungry, and smarting from a thrashing, he unleashed his imagination and soon forgot his aches and pains and delicious picturings of himself, of the charmed life of a petted prince in a regal palace.
One desire came in time to haunt him day and night. It was to see a real prince with his own eyes. He spoke of it once to some of his Orville Court comrades, but they jeered him and scoffed him so unmercifully that he was glad to keep his dream to himself after that. He often read the priest's old book and got him to explain and enlarge upon them. His dreams and readings worked certain changes in him by and by. His dream people were so fine that he grew to laminate his shabby clothing and his dirt and to wish to be clean and better clad. He went on playing in the mud just the same and enjoying it too, but instead of splashing around in the thams, excuse me, the thams, solely for the fun of it, he began to find an added value in it because of the washing and cleanings it offered. Tom could always find something going on around the Maypool and Cheapside, and at the fairs, and now and then, he and the rest of London had a chance to see a military parade when some famous unfortunate was carried prisoner to the tower by land or boat. One summer's day saw poor Anne Askew and three men buried at the stake in Smithfield and heard next bishop preach a sermon to them, which did not interest him. Yes, Tom's life was varied and pleasant enough on the whole. <clears throat> By and by, Tom's reading and dreaming about princely life wrought such a strong effect upon him that he began to act the prince unconsciously. His speech and his manners became curiously ceremonious and courtly to the vast admiration and amusement of his intimates. But Tom's influence among these young people began to grow now day by day, and in time he came to be looked upon by them with a sort of wondering awe as a superior being. He seemed to know so much, and he could do and say such marvelous things, and withal he was so deep and wise. Tom's remarks and Tom's performances were reported by the boys to their elders, and these also presently began to discuss Tom Canty and to regard him as a most gifted and extraordinary creature. Full-grown people brought their perplexities to Tom for a solution and were often astonished at the wit and wisdom of his decisions. In fact, he was a sort of hero to all who knew him except his own family. These only saw, they only saw nothing in him. Oh, how sad. But like Jesus said, you couldn't be a prophet. He, you can't be a prophet in your own hometown. Privately, after a while, Tom organized a royal court. He was the prince. His special comrades were guards, chamberlains, lords, and ladies in waiting, and the royal family. Daily, the mock prince was received with elaborate ceremonials borrowed by Tom from his romantic readings. Daily the great affairs of the Mimic Kingdom were discussed in the Royal Council, and daily his Mimic Highness issued decrees to his imaginary armies, navies, 
and other beings of royalties. After which he would go forth in his rags and beg a few farthings, each his poor crust, take his customary cuffs and abuse, and then stretch himself upon his handful of foul straw and resume his empty grandeur and his dreams. And still his desire to look just once upon a real prince in the flesh grew upon him day by day and week by week, until at last it absorbed all other desires and became the one passion of his life. One January day, on his usual begging tour, he tramped despondently upon excuse me, up and down the region round about Mincing Lane and Little East Cheap, hour after hour, barefooted and cold, looking at cook shop windows and longing for the dreadful pork piles and other deadly inventions displayed there for him. These were dainties fit for the angels, that is, judging by the smell they were, for it had never been his good luck to own and eat one. There was a cold drizzle of rain. The atmosphere was murky. It was a melancholy day. At night, Tom reached home so wet and tired and hungry that it was not possible for his father and grandmother to observe his forlorn condition and not be moved after their fashion, wherefore they gave him a brisk cuffing at once and sent him to bed. For a long time his pain and hunger and the swearing and fighting going on in the building kept him awake, but at last his thoughts drifted away to far romantic lands, and he felt as he fell asleep in the company of jeweled and gilded princelings who live in vast palaces and had servants saloming before them or flying to execute their orders. And then, as usual, he dreamed that he was princeling himself. All night long, the glories of his royal estate shone upon him and moved among great lords and ladies in a blaze of light, breathing perfumes, drinking in delicious music, and answering the reverent obscenities of the glittering throng as it parted to make way for him. With here a smile and there a nod of his princely head, and when he awoke in the morning and looked upon the wretchedness about him, his dream had had its usual effect. It had intensified the surroundings a thousandfold. Then came bitterness and heartbreak and then tears. Thank you guys for listening to the Only You Podcast. Chapter 3 Tom's Meeting with the Prince Tom got up hungry and sauntered hungry away. But with his thoughts busy with the shadowy splendors of his night's dreams, he wandered here and there in the city, hardly noticing where he was going or what was happening around him. People jostled him and 
Some gave him rough speeches, but it was all lost on the musing boy. By and by he found himself at Temple Bar, the farthest from home he had ever traveled in that direction. He stopped and considered a moment, then fell into his imaginings again and passed on outside the walls of London. The Strand had ceased to be country road, then regarded itself as a street, but by a Strand construction, for though there was tolerably compact row of houses on one side of it, there were only some scattered great buildings on the other, these being palaces of rich nobles with ample and beautiful grounds stretching to the river grounds that are now closely packed with grim acres of brick and stone. Tom discovered Sharing Village present, presently with re, rested him, excuse me, Tom discovered Sharing Village presently and rested himself at the beautiful cross built there by a bereaved king of early days, then idled down a quiet, low, lovely road past the great cardinal's stately palace toward a far more mighty and majestic palace beyond Westminster. Tom stared in glad wonder at the vast pile of masonry, the wide-spreading wings, the frowning bastions and turrets, the huge stone gateway with its gilded bars and its magnificent array of colossal granite lions and the other signs and symbols of English royalty was the desire of his soul to be satisfied at last. Here, indeed, with the king's palace, might he not hope to see a prince now, a prince of flesh and blood, if heaven were willing. At each side of the gilded gate stood a living statue, that is to say, an erect and stately and motionless man of arms, clad from head to heel in shining steel armor. At a respectful distance were many country folk and people from the city waiting for any chance glimpse of royalty that might offer. Splendid Carriages with splendid people in them and splendid servants outside were arriving and departing by several other noble gateways that pierced the royal enclosure. Poor little Tom in his rags approached and was moving slowly and timidly past the centennials with a beating heart and a rising hope when all at once he caught sight through the golden bars of a spectacle, excuse me, of a spectacle that almost made him shout for joy. Within was a comely boy, tanned and brown, with sturdy outdoor sports and exercises, whose clothing was all of lovely silks and satins, shining with jewels, at his hip a little jeweled sword and dagger, dainty, on his feet, with red heels on his head, and a jaunty crimson cap, with duping plums fastened with a great sparkle gem. Several gorgeous gentlemen stood near, his servants without a doubt, 
Oh, he was a prince, a prince, uh, a living prince, a real prince, without the shadows of a question, and the prayer of the pauper's boy's heart was answered at last. Tom's breath came quick and short with excitement, and his eyes grew big with wonder and delight. Everything gave way in his mind instantly to one desire that was to get close to the prince and have a good devouring look at him. Before he knew what he was about, he had his face against the gate bars. The next instant, one of the soldiers snatched him rudely away and sent him spinning around in gaping crowd of country docks and London idlers. The soldier said, Mind thy manners, thou young beggar. The crowd jeered and laughed, but the young prince sprang to the gate with his face flushed and his eyes flashing with indignation and cried out, How dost thou use a poor lad like that? How dost thou use the king, my father's meanest subject? So open the gates and let him in. You should have seen the fickle crowded snatch off their hats then. You should have heard them cheer and shout, Long live the Prince of Wales! The soldiers presented arms with their halberds, opened the gates, and presented again at the little Prince of Poverty passed in, in his fluttering rags, to join hands with the Prince of Limitless Plenty. Edward Tudor said, Thou lookest tired and hungry. Thou hast been treated ill. Come with me. Half a dozen attendants sprang forward to, and I don't know what interfered, no doubt, but they were waved aside with a right royal gesture, and they stopped stock still where they were like so many statues. Edward took Tom to a rich apartment in the palace, which... He called his cabinet. By his command, a repast was brought, such as Tom had never encountered before except in books. The prince, with princely delicacy and breeding, sent away the servants so that his humble guests might not be embarrassed by their critical presence. Then he sat nearby and asked questions while Tom ate. <clears throat> what is thy name, lad? Tom Canty, ain't it pleased thee, sir? Tis an odd one. Where dost live? In the city. Please thee, sir. Awful court. Out of Pudding Lane. Awful court? Truly, tis another odd one? Has parents? Parents have I, sir. And a grandam likewise, that is, but indifferently precious to me. God forgive me if it be offense to say it. Also twin sisters, Nan and Bet. Then is thy grandam not over kind to thee, I take it? Never to any other is she, so please your worship. She hath a wicked heart and worketh evil all her days. Doeth she mistreat thee? There was times that she saith her hand, being asleep and overcome with drunk, but when she hath her judgment clear again, she maketh it up to me with goodly beatings. A fierce look 
came into the little prince's eyes, and he cried out, What? Beatings? Oh, indeed, yes, please, you, sir. Beatings? And thou so frail and little? Hark ye! Before the night come, she shall hire here to the tower, the king, my father. And sooth, you forget, sir, her low degrade. The tower is for the great alone. True indeed, I had not thought of that. I will consider her punishment. Is thy father kind to thee? Not more than grammar canty, sir. Fathers be alike, mayhap. Mine hath not a doll's temper. He smitteth with a heavy hand, yet spareth me. He spareth me not always with his tongue, though, sooth to say. How doeth thy mother use thee? She is good, sir, and giveth me neither sorrow nor pain of any sort. And Nan and Bet are like to her in this way. How old be these? Fifteen. And it please you, sir? The Lady Elizabeth, my sister, is fourteen, and the Lady Jane Grey, my cousin, is of my own age, and comely and gracious withal, but my sister, the Lady Mary, with her gloomy men, and look, look you, excuse me, look you, do thy sisters forbid their servants to smile, lest the sin destroy their souls? They? Oh, deuce think, sir, that they have servants. The little prince contemplated the little pauper gravely a moment, then said, And prithee, why not? Who helpeth them undress at night? Who aireth them when they rise? None, sir. Wouldn't have them take off their garment and sleep without, like the beast? Their garment? Have they but one? Ah, good your worship. What would they do with more? Truly, they have not two bodies each. It is a quaint and marvelous thought. Thy pardon. I had not meant to laugh, but the good Nan and thy bet shall have rement and lackey enos, and that soon, too, my coffier shall look to it. No, thank me not, tis nothing. Thou speakest well, thou hast an easy grace in it, art learning. I know not if I am or not, sir. The good priest that is called Father Andrew taught me of his kindness from his books. Knowest thou the Latin, but scantly, sir, I doubt. Learn it, lad. Tis hard only at first. The Greek is harder, but neither these nor any tongues else, I think, are hard to Lady Elizabeth and my cousin, but... Shouldst hear those damsels at it. But tell me thy awful, awful court. Hast thou a pleasant life there? Thank you guys once again for listening. This is your boy Lo Jackson. And this is The Prince and the Pauper by Mr. Mark Twain.